Welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens. It is good to have you all with me for this, our 38th session in our exploration of Tolkien's Middle-earth. Tonight, we move into chapter four of the third book of The Lord of the Rings and introduce one of the most interesting, one of the most fascinating, certainly one of the most popular characters in the entire novel, Treebeard. We're getting Treebeard tonight, you guys. We also get Merry and Pippin, whom, having escaped from the orcs who captured them back at Parthgalen, shelter in the Fangorn Forest are introduced to the aforementioned Treebeard, who calls the Antmoot, then marches with his arboreal allies to Isengard. Will we make it through this entire chapter tonight? Almost certainly not. You guys, I have, I think, uh, 20 slides taken from this chapter, but that's okay. We're going to cover as much ground as we can tonight, and then we'll cover the rest of the chapter along with the next chapter next week in There and Back Again. Sometimes the divisions between these sessions aren't quite as neat as I would like them to be. We have Tolkien Lover joining us tonight. We have Sam with us and Angela and Shane and Gildarts Winters and Karen and Nikki. It is great to have you all here. I know that you are all as excited as I am to talk about ants, to talk about Treebeard, to talk about the Fangorn Forest. And wow, we just have a lot of material to cover. So... Let's waste no time uh, with the preamble. Let's get right into our discussion of Ents. The word Ent is taken from the old English word for giant. And this concept has been rolling around in Tolkien's development of The Lord of the Rings pretty much since he sat down and started work on this long-awaited sequel to The Hobbit. While drafting this novel, Tolkien had a vague concept for a giant named Treebeard who was going to interrupt the story at some point on the eastern side of the Misty Mountains. And the versions change. His, his notion of this character alters substantially as he moves through. But then we arrive suddenly, with almost no warning at all, at Treebeard. We get the character that we have come to know and love. He emerges almost out of nowhere. He writes in a letter to W.H. Uh, Auden in 1955. The professor writes, Take the ants, for instance. I did not consciously invent them at all. The chapter called Treebeard, parenthetically, that is tonight's chapter, from Treebeard's first remark on page 66 was written off more or less as it stands, with an effect on myself, except for labor pains, almost like reading someone else's work. And I like ants now, he continues, because they do not seem to have anything to do with me. I dare say something had been going on in the unconscious, scare quotes around the unconscious in the professor's letter here, for some time, and that accounts for my feeling throughout, especially when stuck, that I was not inventing but reporting imperfectly and had at times to wait until what really happened came through. And we've seen this element of Tolkien's relationship with his secondary creation throughout the entire writing of The Lord of the Rings, even back to the writing of The Hobbit, and certainly his continued revision of his legendarium. He didn't change his mind about these stories as he was writing them as much as he discovered new elements. This is most notable, besides Treebeard, who just shows up in the narrative, as that letter attests, shows up in that narrative ready for prime time, ready for the spotlight, but in no way developed consciously by Tolkien. Up until this point, the most notable example of this has been the Lady Galadriel, who has been on the periphery of the Lothlorien sequence basically since the first version of, of that, that chapter was written. Basically since Tolkien made it through Khazad-dum and started writing Lothlorien, he had a concept of the Lady Galadriel and continued to revise those sequences, raising her in importance, making her more and more and more significant every time he revisited it. And he accounted at the time by saying that this was not a process of conscious revision, but rather a process of discovery. 
The professor is unique, of course, in a number of ways, but perhaps the most striking, particularly for our purposes here on There and Back Again, is his ability to read his own text, to investigate and discover his own secondary creation. He performs exactly this kind of analytical work on his own prose, on his own narrative, and that is startling. It's striking. It's joyous, I think, for those of us who are engaged in similar endeavors. It's just a wonderful thing. And of course, for Treebeard to emerge so full and so richly on the page is a testament to the professor's conscious skill, certainly, but also his innate and unconscious knack for storytelling. He was a storyteller par excellence. And I think that it is easy sometimes to to allow that to become occluded by some of the biographical detail of the professor's life, to, to think about his skill with philology, his interest in philology and in constructed language, his, his interest in this fictional history. You know, we talked recently about the difference between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings being that The Hobbit is a fairy tale and The Lord of the Rings is in at least a, a an historic mode. You know, he's, he's reporting these events as they come to him. But his innate skill as a storyteller continues to astound. And I think that that is the single reason that these books are as immediately compelling, as, as enduring, and as lingering as they are. So when we talk about Tolkien's approach to his work and we talk about the ways, the careful, painstaking ways in which he constructed these worlds, we mustn't forget that from time to time, a character would just show up and take over the page, and that would be it. And as he says, if you look at the history of Middle-earth, as he says, the uh, the drafts of this chapter, the drafts of this sequence, the drafts of basically everything, including Treebeard and the rest of the book, came pretty much immediately. There aren't major revisions to these sections of the book because Treebeard showed up on the page and knew what he was about. It's pretty great, you guys. I'm, I'm a big fan of Treebeard, obviously. Um, a little background on the Ents then, and a little background on on what we are going to see. There are a couple of interesting kind of uh, historical elements here. The Elvish name for Ents. Ents is the name for these tree shepherds in the common tongue, in Westron. That is their name. In Elvish, in, in, in Sindarin, they are known as the Onodrim, the singular Onod. So Treebeard is an Onod of the Onodrim. That's kind of the, the language differential that we'll get there, which is significant primarily, of course, because we're going to be talking a lot about different languages in tonight's session. We should also talk about the march to Isengard and the fact this is one of my favorite kind of biographical details, personal details about uh, Professor Tolkien. Um, he wrote the march to Isengard. He writes the, the coming awake of Fangorn Forest and the response to the depredations of Saruman in explicit response to Macbeth. He noted that uh, when Burnham Wood is coming to Castle Dunsinane, he was less than thrilled with the final outcome. Less than thrilled, it is said, with men walking on stage with leaves in their hats. If you know the, the plot movement of Macbeth, you'll know the prophecy about Burnham Wood is, is pretty much, you know, it's thin stuff. It's meager stuff. We find a pretty devastating loophole. And of course, Tolkien is not above a pretty devastating loophole when it comes to prophecies. We'll talk more about that in the pages of The Return of the King, of course. But he decided that when he did the scene of Burnham Wood coming to Dunsinane, of Fangorn Forest coming to Isengard, he would do it right. And do it right, he absolutely did. Let's get into our reading tonight. Um, we pick up from the beat at the end of the last chapter, when the narrative perspective pulls all the way back from Merry and Pippin, and they are explicitly unaware of what happens to the Urukai at the hands of the Rohirrim. But that plays out away from their attention, so we return to them with one of these odd little narrative continuances. Most of the time, Tolkien doesn't write 
like he is writing a sequel, or uh, not a sequel, excuse me, like he is writing a series. He doesn't write in this serial mode. He breaks away from that because this isn't a series. This isn't even really entirely a novel. It is kind of a history of Middle Earth, and he genuinely, uh, generally respects that a great deal. We get in general, these large sweeping landscapes and vistas. We'll get a beat of, of character interaction at the start of a chapter, and then we'll get, they found themselves at this place, and we'll get the landscape in which they find themselves. And we get a beat of that with Mary and Pippin in just a moment, but we start with a very direct continuation. Let me share this slide with you here. And put that, there we go. Meanwhile, the hobbits went with as much speed as the dark and tangled forest allowed, following the line of the running stream westward and up toward the slope of the mountains, deeper and deeper into Fangorn. Slowly their fear of the orcs died away and their pace slackened. A queer, stifling feeling came over them, as if the air were too thin or too scanty for breathing. At last, Merry halted. "'We can't go on like this,' he panted. "'I want some air. Let's have a drink at any rate,' said Pippin. "'I'm parched.' He clambered onto a great tree root that wound down into the stream, and stooping, drew up some water in his cupped hands." It was clear and cold, and he took many draughts. Mary followed him. The water refreshed them and seemed to cheer their hearts. For a while they sat together on the brink of the stream, dabbling their sore feet and legs and peering round at the trees that stood silently about them, rank upon rank, until they faded away into grey twilight in every direction. "'I suppose you haven't lost us already,' said Pippin, leaning back against a great tree trunk. "'We can at least follow the course of the stream, the Entwash, or whatever you call it, and get out again the way we came.' "'We could, if our legs would do it,' said Mary, "'and if we could breathe properly.' "'Yes, it is all very dim and stuffy in here,' said Pippin. "'It reminds me somehow of the old room in the great place of the Tooks, "'away back at the Smiles in Tuckborough, "'a huge place where the furniture has never been moved or changed for generations. "'They say the old Took lived in it year after year, "'while he and the room got older and shabbier together, "'and it has never been changed since he died a century ago. "'And old Gerontius was my great-great-grandfather. "'That puts it back a bit. "'But that has nothing to the old feeling of this wood.' Look at all these weeping, trailing beards and whiskers of lichen, and most of the trees seem to be half-covered with ragged, dry leaves that have never fallen. Untidy. I can't imagine what spring would look like here if it ever comes, still less a spring cleaning. But the sun, at any rate, must peep in sometimes, said Mary. It does not look or feel at all like Bilbo's description of Mirkwood. That was all dark and black and the home of dark black things. This is just dim and frightfully treeish. You can't imagine animals living here at all, or staying for long. One of the elements that we're going to discuss tonight, one of the elements that is going to be touched upon, at least in the discussion between Mary Pippin and Treebeard, is the relationship between Fangorn Forest and the Old Forest on the eastern borders of the Shire. At one time, we are told, the Fangorn Forest covered all of Eregion. At one time, there was a single forest that spanned the length of this entire continent. But that has since been broken up. That has since faltered and faded. It has broken up, of course, thanks to the coming of man, but it has also given way to grassland. It has given way to open space. The spirit of the forest is not as strong as once it was. But we are wise, I think, to recall the old forest as we read these chapters pertaining to Fangorn. We're wise to pay close attention to the relationship between Fangorn and the old forest. And we talked, for those of you who are joining us recently, we talked a lot when we were discussing the old forest about the the presence of the wood itself, the old forest as a gestalt entity, the old forest as a personality. We can talk meaningfully about the old forest having desires, having motivation, taking action. Remember how the old forest steers the hobbits toward the bonfire glade and then leads them up to the top of the hill where they can look out as if they are on an island surrounded by an ocean of green? And then, of course, the old forest leads them directly into the Withywindle Valley, and we might argue directly into the clutches of Old Man Willow. 
We escape that, thanks, of course, to the intrusion of one Tom Bombadil. Does Fangorn do the same thing? Well, yes. I mean, pretty clearly, yes. We're told again that the air is stifling, that it is close, and we begin to feel fatigued. We begin that same sleepiness. Not quite the same sleepiness. It is not quite the same seductive sleepiness as we encountered in the Old Forest, but it is similar. Then in this passage, Merry and Pippin climb up on an old tree root and start refreshing themselves from the stream, and we must be reminded of the encounter with Old Man Willow, where they find themselves by the stream in the Withywindel and are urged by the voice of the Willow Man to drink, to drink deep, to actually put their legs, their feet and their legs in the stream and drink, because... That's how a tree does it. And I guess the tree wouldn't necessarily know. Well, actually, no. The best thing is to cup the water and bring it to your mouth. No, we're in a fully fully arboreal mode here. And we see an echo of that here. And we'll see an echo, too, of the hobbits being guided, being directed, being led by Fangorn. But Fangorn is not the old forest. And Fangorn is not, explicitly, textually, Mirkwood. It is possible that Mirkwood and Fangorn had much more in common back in the dim and distant past, but it is not corrupted here. This is not the home of dark, black things, the way that Mirkwood was. This instead is simply tree-ish, as Mary says here. It is the domain of trees. Animals do not linger here. This is not a full and vibrant ecosystem in that sense. It is something more purposeful, something more intentional, something more... Well, I hesitate to say anthropomorphic, right? It's it's not quite a person. Fangorn is not quite a person, though Fangorn is also the name given to Treebeard. The reason, by the way, that this this uh, session of There and Back Again is called Treebeard and Beard Tree is that Fangorn literally translates as Beard Tree. So they're going to meet Treebeard in the Beard Tree Forest. That's where we are. And of course, we get the reference here to the great beards of lichen that hang on the trees and the, the old leaves that have never yet completely followed. And Pippin can't quite imagine a spring because spring came to Fangorn Forest a long time ago, a long time ago. And it isn't now the kind of forest that is renewed with the passing of each year, the way that the old forest to a certain degree is, the way that certainly the forests back in the Shire, you know, when when, the Hobbit, uh, when, when Frodo and the others, the, the Hobbit walking party run into Gildor back in the Shire and we get this kind of idyllic version of, of uh, a neighborhood forest back there. This is not that kind of wood, nor yet is it like Lothlorien where, you know, this eternal kind of spring, this enforced eternal spring endures. It's not quite like that either. Fangorn is something very, very different. Let's look at how, uh, look at how Fangorn guides our hobbits. I do love, by the way, the, the reference there to the, the home of the old Took and Pippin once again doing that thing that Pippin does, which is kind of not quite framing his current experience in terms of his personal history. Sam does that, right? Sam will, will look at the world around him and sometimes try to retranslate his current experience into the the metaphors that he has used back in the Shire. He is a simple hobbit, you know, <laughs> he understands the world of the Shire, so he will endeavor to make sense of this new and wider and more magical world by using the metaphors and the, the images and the symbolism of the Shire specifically, of his life in the Shire specifically. Pippin doesn't do quite that, but Pippin will try to build a bridge. He will look for continuity of experience in a way that 
that Frodo doesn't. I think Frodo kind of led by Bilbo in Bilbo's mold, if you like, embraces the wild for what it is, embraces the new for what it is. But Pippin mediates between Frodo and Sam in a really interesting way. This, though, is how Fangorn leads the hobbits around. They found it was further than they thought. The ground was rising steeply still, and it was becoming increasingly stony. The light grew broader as they went on, and soon they saw that there was a rock wall before them, the side of a hill or the abrupt end of some long route thrust out by the distant mountains. No trees grew in it, and the sun was falling full on its stony face. The twigs of the trees at its foot were stretched out and stiff, as if reaching out to the warmth. Where all had looked so shabby and grey before, the wood now gleamed with rich browns and with the smooth black greys of bark like polished leather. The boles of the trees glowed with a soft green like young grass. Early spring or a fleeting vision of it was about them. In the face of the stony wall there was something like a stair, natural, perhaps, and made by the weathering and splitting of the rock, for it was rough and uneven. High up, almost level with the tops of the forest trees, was a shelf under a cliff. Nothing grew there but a few grasses and weeds at its edge, and one old stump of a tree with only two bent branches left. It looked almost like the figure of some gnarled old man standing there, blinking in the morning light. Up we go, said Mary joyfully. Now for a breath of air and a sight of the land. So they are led here by this, this gleam of gold in the distance, as if, the narrator tells us, as if the canopy had parted to admit a beam of sunlight into the deepest part of the forest. And hey, we should probably go in that direction, as if the canopy had parted. The canopy almost certainly did indeed part. So we find ourselves at this this rocky face. We find this this root of the distant mountains that has ventured forth beneath the land and emerged here, which is a, a beautiful image, of course. And then we get the stair. Weathered, yes, of course, but also cracked. How is the rock cracked? How has the rock been cracked? Well, presumably by the forcible intrusion of trees. Trees have grown up among the rock cracks and forced them apart, split them apart. And thus now we have a natural staircase leading up to this stump with branches, looking almost, almost like a man looking out at the distant horizon. So much like the old forest, the Fangorn Forest is, is leading the hobbits. I think that's pretty clear to see. Yes, uh, R. Faramir says in the chat, another as if that was more than if. Yes, yes. And Tolkien Lover says, if the canopy is alive, then go towards light. Absolutely, right? This is a natural response and a good response. But here deeper in the wood, what do we see? Well, we see the springtime. We see a hint of spring, a, a facsimile of spring here, and we're nearing spring. It is, at this point, the very end of February of 1319 of the Third Age, so spring hasn't yet come, but we're getting a sense of springtime. But it feels as though this is a sense of springtime that has endured, and we're getting to the idea that the boles of these trees, that the, the bark of these trees is old and dark, like polished leather, that this is bark that has endured. So while we also get springtime, we get these images of great antiquity, of, of a kind of venerable antiquity here, deeper in the heart of the forest. This feels almost cared for. And then, of course, we meet Treebeard. This is following the, uh, the observation that, they're all, that they almost like the forest. Almost felt you liked the forest. That's good. That's uncommonly kind of you, said a strange voice. Turn around and let me have a look at your faces. I almost feel that I dislike you both, but do not let us be hasty. Turn around. A large knob-knuckled hand was laid on each of their shoulders, and they were twisted round gently but irresistibly. Then two great arms lifted them up. 
They found that they were looking at a most extraordinary face. It belonged to a large, man-like, almost troll-like figure, at least 14 foot high, very sturdy, with a tall head and hardly any neck. Whether it was clad in stuff like green and grey bark, or whether that was its hide, was difficult to say. At any rate, the arms at a short distance from the trunk were not wrinkled, but covered with a brown, smooth skin. The large feet had seven toes each. The lower part of the long face was covered with a sweeping grey beard, bushy, almost twiggy at the roots, thin and mossy at the ends. But at the moment the hobbits noted little but the eyes. Those deep eyes were now surveying them, slow and solemn, but very penetrating. They were brown, shot with a green light. Often afterwards, Pippin tried to describe his first impression of them. One felt as if there was an enormous well behind them, filled up with ages of memory and long, slow, steady thinking, but their surface was sparkling with the present, like a sun shimmering on the outer leaves of a vast tree, or on the ripples of a very deep lake. I don't know, but it felt as if something that grew in the ground, asleep, you might say, or just feeling itself as something between root tip and leaf tip, between deep earth and sky, had suddenly waked up and was considering you with the same slow care that it had given to its own inside affairs for endless years." Hrum, hum, murmured the voice, a deep voice like a very deep woodwind instrument. Very odd indeed. Do not be hasty, that is my motto. But if I had seen you before I heard your voices, I liked them. Nice little voices that reminded me of something I cannot remember. If I had seen you before I heard you, I should have just trodden on you, taking you for little orcs, and found out my mistake afterwards. Very odd you are indeed, root and twig. Very odd. First of all, we get another intrusion of chance, if chance you call it. If I had not first heard your voices, if I had first caught a glimpse of you coming through Fangorn Forest, well, I would have squished you. I would have squished you and then found out my mistake and presumably felt bad about it after the fact, but it's a good thing you hobbits are chatty. Because if you weren't talking to each other, this would have turned out very badly for you, indeed. So another moment of, yes, as I say, chance, if chance, you call it. So this is our introduction to Treebeard. This giant figure, this half-tree-like, half-man-like or troll-like figure, 14 feet tall, covered in this smooth brown skin, but with a, a barky, mossy raiment around him. It is impossible to tell if this is his garb, if this is his clothing, or if this is his hide, if this is his skin there. We get, of course, the beard, twiggy at the roots, thin and mossy at the ends, but then we get the eyes. And this is unusual, even for Professor Tolkien, to pivot here away from the direct description into Pippin's own temporarily displaced, you know, recollection of this encounter is fascinating. And it does something very, very important, right? It does, it does two things very important. The first is to render Treebeard immediately in terms of story, in terms of myth, but it also renders him in terms of great antiquity. Pippin is going to survive this encounter. But Pippin will be talking about this encounter for many long years afterward, and when he does, he is going to do so with a great deal of thought and a great deal of care. And he is going to see these eyes, this depth of memory, but also the, the superficial sparkle of presence and presumably of beauty. All of the metaphors that he uses here of the natural world are beautiful, are compelling here. So he's going to think in these two terms, this great age also this presence, this 
idea that, that something has waked up, right? That this, this figure here in the forest, that this avatar of the forest itself has awoken. And the awakening there is twofold, right? On the one hand, it has slumbered long for many years, but had an awareness. It had an awareness of the passing of seasons. It had that kind of, 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 of sleepy awareness of the world around it, but now it is awoken. Now it has real presence and real focus, and that focus is turned on our hobbits. We're making a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of tree puns here in the Crowdcast chat, which is pretty good. I, I'm fond of that. That's pretty good. Um, Joseph says, my new favorite power trio, Treebeard, Old Man Willow, and the Whomping Willow from Harry Potter, they would form, wow, quite an interesting group, wouldn't they? I mean, the two Willows, you've got to think, would kind of team up with each other. Old Man Willow, probably, you know, his songs are pretty good. I don't know if the Whomping Willow knows any songs. We're certainly about to find out that Treebeard knows some songs. Does the Whomping Willow sing? Oh, possibly. Possibly, yes. It would be fascinating to think that there were ants lurking in the Forbidden Forest right outside the grounds of Hogwarts. Yeah. Good. Good. <laughs> I love that trio, says Danielle. Yes, good. <laughs> oh, and Gildart's Winters drags us back to Buffy. Don't forget about Dark Willow. Dark Willow, season six of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's a good connection. It's a good pull. I like it very much. So this is our Treebeard. According, curiously, to... Um, to a fellow by the name of Neville Coghill, who it will surprise you to learn, I'm sure, is English. Neville Coghill was an associate of the Inklings, never quite an Inkling himself, but he was kind of on the, the periphery of the Inklings at Oxford and knew both Professor Tolkien and his friend C.S. Lewis very well. And he has been known to say from time to time, or was known to say from time to time, that the mode and manner of Treebeard's speech is very specifically the mode and manner of C.S. Lewis's speech. C.S. Lewis, renowned for his great and booming voice, but also his his crafted oratory, I suppose. C.S. Lewis would would talk, as has been said, as other people write, that he would formulate these, you know, C.S. Lewis would talk in subclauses, which <laughs> real people, it is said, don't, but C.S. Lewis certainly did. So if you can think now of Treebeard sounding like, you know, our friend Jack, that's probably not a bad pull. That's probably not a bad, a bad connection here. So Treebeard doesn't recognize hobbits. He doesn't understand what hobbits are. But that's because he has some history. Pippin, though still amazed, no longer felt afraid. Under those eyes, he felt a curious suspense, but not fear. Please, he said, who are you and what are you? A queer look came into the old eyes, a kind of wariness. The deep wells were covered over. Mm, now, answered the voice. Well, I am an Ent, or that's what they call me. Yes, Ent is the word. The Ent I am, you might say, in your manner of speaking. Fangorn is my name, according to some. Treebeard, others make it. Treebeard will do. An Ent, said Mary. What's that? But what do you call yourself? What's your real name? Oh, now, replied Treebeard. Oh, now that would be telling. Not so hasty. And I am doing the asking. You are in my country. What are you, I wonder? I cannot place you. You do not seem to come in the old lists that I learned when I was young. But that was a long, long time ago. And they may have made new lists. Let me see. Let me see. How did it go? Learn now the lore of living creatures. First name the four, the three peoples. 
eldest of all the elf children, dwarf the deriver, dark are his houses, ent the earth-born, old as mountains, man the mortal, master of horses. Mmm, mmm, mmm. Beaver the builder, buck the leaper, Beer, beer, sorry, bear be hunter, boar the fighter, hound is hungry, hare is fearful, mm. Mm. eagle in ivory, ox in pasture, heart horn crowned, hawk is swiftest, swan of the whitest, serpent coldest, mm. Hmm, how did it go? Rum, tum, rum, tum, rum, tum, tum. It was a long list. But anyway, you do not seem to fit in anywhere. We always seem to have got left out of the old lists and the old stories, says Mary. Yet we've been around for quite a long time. We're hobbits. The idea of Treebeard learning by rote all the creatures of the world. How do we understand the creatures of the world? Well, here's a handy primer. Bears, oh, they hunt bees. Just FYI. You know, you should probably know that hounds are hungry and hares are fearful and oxes live in pastures and swans are white, I guess. Just, you know, so that you know. And of course, this is important in part because Fangorn does not exist in what we, from our, you know, modern kind of scientific perspective, would consider a balanced ecosystem. No, this is a place of trees. This is a place for the forest itself, and animals do not come here often. So Treebeard, as the embodiment of Fangorn, as the protector of Fangorn, as the focal point for the gestalt entity that is Fangorn, we might speculate, Treebeard is not necessarily going to be familiar with the creatures of the outside world, but he will learn his list. He will learn about the creatures in the world, those creatures which move about. But for those of us who have been thinking a little about the origins of Tolkien's secondary creation, the origins of Arda, well, this is kind of a shock. Elves first, the eldest. Eldest of all the elf children. Check. We know that elves came first. Dwarf the Delver, darker his houses. Okay, dwarves, yes, awaken shortly after the elves, that's fine. Ent the earthborn, old as mountains. I'm sorry, what? We're accustomed to thinking of the three free peoples of this realm. We're accustomed to thinking of the children of Iluvatar, elves and men, brackets, and hobbits, descended from men. It's fine, don't worry about it. But we're accustomed to thinking of elves and men. And dwarves, not children of Iluvatar, not created as a part of the original plan, but present here nonetheless. Those three, those are the good guys. That's it. Those are the peoples of Middle-earth. But also Ents. And Ents inserted third on the list before men. That is provocative. That is surprising. We've got, uh, Sam is, is quoting Treebeard here. Yes, but we're going to get to, yes, nobody is altogether on my side. We're going to get to that slide in just a little bit, but you're absolutely right. Yes. Um, good, good. Where would wizards go? Treebeard seems to know that they are different. Well, wizards, of course, would come much, much later. Presumably they are down near the very end of the list. Wizards have only been operative in the world for about a thousand years. So they've come along after pretty much everyone else is done. And... Yes, I suppose that that Treebeard knows of Gandalf and has obviously had some dealing with Saruman, so presumably, yes, he would have, have at least added wizards to the list, but maybe we don't quite get there. This is probably not an exhaustive list of all of the creatures that Treebeard has encountered or has knowledge of, but it is at least the, the primer on those things. Um, 
So this is, again, we're moving at a heck of a pace here tonight. I, I acknowledge that freely, and I would like to spend more time on it. We must talk a little bit about names, right? We must talk a little bit about the power of true names and why it is that Treebeard is so unwilling to yield his own name and so surprised that the hobbits yield their own names. I guess, in fact, let's, let's circle back around to that because we're going to get to that slide in just a moment. But I am now going to break a kind of informal rule that I've had here on There and Back Again, which is a rule against quoting the Silmarillion or referencing the Silmarillion or certainly having a slide from the Silmarillion. But I am going to do exactly that. I am going to pull from the beginning of the Silmarillion. I'm going to pull from the chapter entitled Of Aule and Yavanna. And of course, I've talked a lot about Aule and Yavanna. I've talked a lot about Aule, parenthetically a little about Yavanna, before here on There and Back Again, because we talked about the creation of the dwarves. Those of you who have been uh, keeping up with me will remember that Aule created Aule, the, the smith god of the Valar, right? The kind of god is not the right word, but it's not inappropriate in a way to think of, of the Valar, these, these angelic immortal beings who entered Arda when it was first created as being something like kind of pantheistic gods, kind of pantheistic demigods, at least. They are not god, right? Iluvatar is god. That, he is the only god. He is the creator. He is capital G god. But these Valar have have domains and have capabilities that make them somewhat similar to our kind of notion of pantheistic deities, okay? So Aule is the smith Valar, right? He is the creator. He is the, the, the lowercase c creator. He is the, the maker of things. And so eager is he to share his knowledge with the children of Iluvatar, who have not at this point as of yet shown up, he creates the dwarves. He builds the dwarves. And he says, this is great. They're only animate as long as my attention is on them, but I've created them. And now I have someone that I can teach my stuff to. This is so cool. And Iluvatar says, hey, no, you don't get to do that. That was not in the song. That was not the intended purpose. You have to destroy them. Ultimately, Iluvatar grants the dwarves awareness and life and sense all their own, and the dwarves become a race of Middle-earth, but created by Aule, right? So Aule's partner, wife, Yavanna, who is the goddess of all green and growing things, the queen of earth, the giver of fruits, she's a little concerned by this, and she says, okay, it's cool that you made these dwarves, but there is now going to be an enmity between your dwarves specifically and my people, like my trees, my, my you know, uh, plant-based kingdom, everything that grows in the earth. There's going to be an animosity there because your dwarves aren't going to care. They were not a part of the original song, so they're not a part of the greater context of this creation. So this is our slide from the Silmarillion. Therefore she went before Manwe, and she did not betray the council of Aule, but she said, King of Arda, is it true, as Aule hath said to me, that the children, when they come, shall have dominion over all the things of my labor, to do as they will therewith? It is true, said Manwe, but why dost thou ask, for thou hadst no need of the teaching of Aule? Then Yavanna was silent and looked into her own thought, and she answered, Because my heart is anxious, thinking of the days to come. All my works are dear to me. Is it not enough that Melkor should have marred so many? Shall nothing that I have devised be free from the dominion of others? If thou hadst thy will, what wouldst thou reserve? said Manwe. Of all thy realm, what dost thou hold dearest? All have their worth, said Yavanna, and each contributes to the worth of the others, but the Kelvar can flee or defend themselves, whereas the Olvar that grow cannot. And among those I hold trees dear, long in the growing, swift shall they be in the falling, and unless they pay toll with fruit upon bough, little mourned in their passing, so I see in my thought. 
Would that the trees might speak on behalf of all things that have roots and punish those that wrong them. This is a strange thought, said Manwe. Yet it was in the song, said Ivana. For while thou wert in the heavens with all uh, excuse me, for while thou for while thou wert in the heavens and with Olmo built the clouds and poured out the rains, I lifted up the branches of great trees to receive them, and some sang to Iluvatar amid the wind and the rain. Then Manwe sat silent, and the thought of Yuvana that she had put into his heart grew and unfolded, and it was beheld by Iluvatar. Then it seemed to Manwe that the song rose once more about him, and he heeded now many things therein, that though he had heard them he had not heeded before. And at last the vision was renewed, but it was not now remote, for he was himself within it, and yet he saw that all was upheld by the hand of Iluvatar, and the hand entered in, and from it came forth many wonders that had until then been hidden from him in the hearts of the Ainur. Obviously, the mode of the Silmarillion is very different from the mode of the, the kind of rhetorical mode of the Lord of the Rings. It is much, it's, it's of a much higher register. It is much more biblical, obviously, in its language and in its construction. But the story here is pretty simple. Yavanna is worried. Aule has told her that the children, when they come, shall have dominion over all things of my labor to do, with as, they, to do as they will therewith. When the children come, when there are other beings possessed of mind and possessed of soul upon this world, is it true that they're just going to be able to do whatever the hell they want with everything that I have created, which, by the way, is all plant life on this planet? And Mommy says, well, yeah, but you didn't need the teaching of Ali to know that. That's like the deal, right? And Yvonne says, my heart is anxious thinking of the days to come. All my works are dear to me. Is it not enough that Melkor should have marred so many? Is it not enough that the shadow, the evil in this world should have ruined so many things? Now everything that I create is subordinate to, you know, the children of Iluvatar? Is there no, no force that will speak in the defense of my creation? Mommy says, well, okay. What, what do you want? What, what would you like to happen? And Yvonne says, well, okay. The Kelvar, you know, animals can move so they can defend themselves. They can flee and they can fight and they can take action. That's great. But the Olvar can't. Plants can't. They can't fight back. They can't protect themselves from the coming of the children of Iluvatar. Among these I hold trees dear. Long in the growing, swift shall they be in the felling. And unless they pay toll with fruit upon bough, little mourned in their passing. So I see in my thought. Trees are the best. Trees are most sacred to me. Long in the growing, but swift in the felling. This seems unjust to me. It is trivial. It is easy to kill a tree, but it takes a long time for a tree to grow. And they have no defense. They have no protector. This is a strange thought, says Manwe. Ah, uh, okay. You remember, Yovana, how we entered this world after it was created, after we sang about it for a bit, the Aina Lindale, the first chapter of the Silmarillion. Do you remember us all? Hey, singing about the world and how the world is going to be great and how things are going to happen in the way that they're supposed to happen. Remember that whole discussion? This is how it was always supposed to be. And Yovana says, uh, no, no. Yet it was in the song. Yvonne says, no, no, no. Hey, remember this part of the song? You didn't pay attention to it, maybe. You weren't conscious of it. You had not heeded it fully, perhaps. But remember this part of the song? While thou wert in the heavens and with Olmo built the clouds and poured out the rain, while you, king of Arda, while you, greatest of our number, you know, while, while you, lord of the winds and the air and the birds, while you were up in the sky with Olmo, the king of the seas, and you created clouds and you let the first rain fall upon the surface of Arda, and I in my influence walked among the trees and lifted their branches to receive the rain. Remember when that happened? I heard them sing. 
I heard some of them sing praise to Iluvatar. And that was in the song. I remember us singing about that before the world was ever created. And Maume says, huh, weird. I guess you're right. This idea that Yavanna gives to Manwe unfolds within him, and he suddenly understands, no, wait, you're right, that was in the song. This isn't a part of my domain. This isn't a thing that I was paying attention to. But you're right. We did plan this from the beginning. So after this slide, spirits are, are sent out to find residence, to, to take up residence within the bodies of particular trees and thus the Ents are created, created autonomously from the beginning, created in accordance with the song. They are not the children of Iluvatar. Why are they not the children of Iluvatar? Because they don't have souls, right? They are not created within the world. Spirits go into the Ents. They are, they are, <laughs> supernatural is such a loaded word, I suppose, <laughs> particularly within the frame of the Lord of the Rings when it has like two specific and very different contradictory meanings. But they are, they are not of Arda. They came from without. They are presumably either some spirits of nature, which are never really fully discussed, or possibly Maiar. They are, you know, junior Einar. They are junior angelic spirits that are sent out to guard the forest. This is Yavanna's arguably single greatest act of creation. It's, it's, it's a quiet act of creation, but it is personal and protective. Here she is, I guess, not gardening the forests of Arda, right? She's not gardening the forests, but she is allowing the forests to garden themselves, to protect themselves. I love the chapter of Aule and Yavanna in the Silmarillion. It's one of my, it is probably, in fact, my favorite chapter in that entire book. And I can't wait to talk about it here on There and Back Again. But uh, about, I don't know, 18 months from now, whenever we get around to that. But uh, I wanted to touch on the creation of the ants because the creation of the ants, particularly as a counterpoint to the creation of the dwarves, is so powerful, is so specific. Let me uh, catch up in the chat here. Um, Shane says, looking in Treebeard's eyes is looking deep into memory beyond Middle-earth, question mark, and that is why they are so memorable? Possibly. Possibly, right? What is the spirit that animates Treebeard? Well, Treebeard as an entity is incarnate, right? He is Treebeard and only Treebeard. We know we will learn next week, in fact, here on There and Back Again, that Treebeard is the oldest living thing in the world, bar none. He is it. He has been around since before the elves. He has been around just forever. But he is himself. He is, you know, he is capable of death. He doesn't think of entering into the sphere of Arda, apparently, in the same way that, for example, Gandalf does. Gandalf has a memory of what he was before he was Gandalf. But Treebeard doesn't seem to. So, yes, I, I'm, I'm honestly not sure. But yes, I mean, it, it is interesting. Yeah. Uh, John says, interestingly, Gandalf has a special affinity with trees. Maybe the Ents are relatives. Yeah, possibly in the sense that they were all originally Maiar. Yes. I mean, Sauron too, I guess. And by some accounts, Mr. Tom Bombadil as well. Who knows? Who can say for sure? Yeah. Would Treebeard know, uh, w uh, excuse me, Gildart says, what Treebeard knows would stump Tom Bombadil? Hmm. What is the connection between Treebeard and Tom Bombadil? Um, they don't seem dissimilar, do they? They don't seem dissimilar. They seem as though they would, at the very least, get along like a house on fire. Um, but uh, it's probably a bad metaphor to use, considering that one of them is predominantly made of wood. Um, 
Yes, I'm not sure. Because the exact nature of Tom Bombadil is so difficult to pin down and the exact nature of Treebeard is less difficult, but still a little complex, a little challenging. Yes, it's, it's difficult to figure out exactly how they would get along. Good, good. Yeah, I just, I, I love, I love it. This is some praise here for the Silmarillion. I know it's so great to talk at this Silmarillion register, right? It, we, we don't get to do this. This is just, this is just beautiful. Yes, good. Okay, let's uh, keep moving on. So that's our, our history of ants. Ants are created at the behest of Yavanna when she goes to Manwe and says, it's not cool that the children of Iluvatar can just do what they want with plants, right? Like, I mean, I know that they can, but the plants should have someone to speak in their defense. And it was in the song, and thus Manwe is moved. More of the song is revealed to him. He is able to discern more within the song than he was previously. And he feels the hand of Iluvatar. He feels the agency of the creator god here behind everything. So that is our introduction here to, uh, to the, the origins of ants. Let's get back to names because this is one of my favorite topics in, um, in um, uh, all of, of fantasy fiction. Nobody else calls us hobbits. We call ourselves that, said Pippin. Hmm, hmm, come now, not so hasty. You call yourselves hobbits, but you should not go telling just anybody. You'll be letting out your own right names if you're not careful. We aren't careful about that, said Mary. As a matter of fact, I'm a brandybuck, Mariatic brandybuck, though most people just call me Mary. And I'm a took, peregrine took, but I'm generally called Pippin, or even Pip. Mm, but you are hasty folk, I see, said Treebeard. I am honored by your confidence, but you should not be too free all at once. There are ants and ants, you know, or there are ants and things that look like ants but ain't, as you might say. I'll call you Mary and Pippin, if you please. Nice names, for I am not going to tell you my name, not yet, at any rate. A queer, half-knowing, half-humorous look came with a green flicker into his eyes. For one thing, it would take a long while. My name is growing all the time, and I've lived a very long, long time. So my name is like a story. Real names tell you the story of the things that they belong to in my language. In the old Entish, as you might say, it is a lovely language, but it takes a very long time to say anything in it, because we do not say anything in it unless it is worth taking a long time to say and to listen to. But now... And the eyes became very bright and present, seeming to grow smaller and almost sharp. What is going on? What are you doing in it all? I can see and hear and smell and feel a great deal from this, from this, from this, alalalala, rumba, commander, lindor, burme. Excuse me, that is a part of my name for it. I do not know what the word is in the outside languages. You know, the thing that we are on where I stand and look out on fine mornings and think about the sun and the grass beyond the wood and the horses and the clouds and the unfolding of the world. What is going on? What is Gandalf up to? And these... Bararum. He made a deep rumbling noise like a discord on a great organ. These... Orcs and young Saruman down at Isengard. I like news, but not too quickly now. Names. Why are names so important? Why are names so significant? Why do names behave as though they have a magical power associated with them? Well, 
for two reasons. Firstly, in the fairy tradition, which is, of course, woven into every single element of, of Tolkien's secondary creation, of Tolkien's legendarium, names do have power. To know the name of a thing is to have power over that thing. But here we get an explanation as to why that might be. In Old Entish, the name of the thing is the story of the thing. Literally, to know the name of a creature is to know its story, is to understand it. And that does give you a power over it. Not necessarily a magical power, not necessarily a, you know, totemic, uh, dwemer kind of power over that thing, but a kind of power nonetheless. Because when you know and understand something, you can, what, exploit it, challenge it, defeat it. There's a part in Treebeard's name where he says, you know, in the old Entish, oh, and also, parenthetically, I am terrified of spiders, and if you ever offer a spider to me, I will do whatever you tell me to do. Ah, it's a funny story. It happened this one time on a Tuesday afternoon. That's a part of Treebeard's name. I mean, it's probably not, but imagine that it is, right? Imagine that he had a, a run-in with Ungoliant or a run-in with Shelob or one of the dark spiders that, that was spawned from, from Shelob. Uh, and, and he has that as, as a detail of his story and a part of his name, and thus now you have a power over him. It may not be a complete power, but it is a power nonetheless. So this works in both senses, right? It works in terms of fairy and fairy tales, but it also works from a philological constructed language point of view. Old Entish is clearly a descriptive language. It is clearly, we can see this from the way that, that Treebeard kind of converts his thoughts into Westron. What is it that he's talking about here? This alalalala rumba commanda lindor burme, this part of my name for it. I do not know what the word is in the outside languages. You know, the thing we are on where I stand and look out on fine mornings and think about the sun and the grass beyond the wood and the horses and the clouds and the unfolding of the world. Oh, a hill, a hill, as the hobbits will offer in a moment. And he says, well, that's a very hasty name for something that has endured since the beginning of the world. And he has a point. He has a point. I would love a translation there of the old, uh, of the old Entish. What exactly is it that he is saying here about, uh, about uh, this hill? What, what, what is this part of the hill story and what does it mean? Yeah. As Tolkien Lover says, and this is what happens when you try to talk to an ant for five minutes. Yes, fair. It, it just goes on. Yes. Burarum is part of the Entish word. Yes, good, says, uh, says John here. Yes. Oh, and Heather says, this reminds me of Bilbo in the list of names given to Smaug. That's very good, right? As he's talking about being, you know, uh, clue finder and, and, and yes, good. And Joseph says there is very little erosion in Middle-earth, apparently. Well, you know, the, the steps are worn, at least. But yes, it's the natural world does tend to endure here in, in Tolkien's conception. Good, good. All right. Um, yes. Uh, Nikki says, people nowadays wouldn't last at all when talking to ants. We have no patience for it. Even the hobbits, who, as we know, like to take a good long time about things and are generally, I mean, I like very much the idea that hobbits are the hasty folk. I can only imagine what Treebeard would make of, I don't know, Barlamon Butterbur, for example, right? Bustling to and fro in like the, the, the tap room there of the, of the Prancing Pony and Bree. Like, that would be impossible for Treebeard to even parse. Hobbits are pretty slow-moving folk, it turns out. But... Still, very, very hasty indeed. So then we move on. Please, Treebeard, he said. Could I ask you something? Why did Celeborn warn us against your forest? He told us not to risk getting entangled in it. Mm, did he now, rumbled Treebeard. And I might have said much the same if you had been going the other way. Do not risk getting entangled in the woods of Lorelindoranen. That is what the elves used to call it, but now they make the name shorter. Lothlorien, they call it. Perhaps they're right. Maybe it is fading, not growing. 
Land of the Valley of Singing Gold. That was it once upon a time. Now it is the Dream Flower. Ah, well. But it is a queer place, and not for just anyone to venture in. I am surprised that you ever got out, and much more surprised that you ever got in. That has not happened to strangers for many a year. It is a queer land. And so is this. Folk have come to grief here. Aye, they have to grief. Laura Lindorinen, Laura. <laughs> There's so much. There's so much cinder in here. Uh, Laura Lindorinen, Lindelorendor, Malinorlelian, or Nermelin, he hummed to himself. They are falling rather behind the world in there, I guess, he said. Neither this country nor anything else outside the Golden Wood is what it was when Celeborn was young. Still, Torelelo mea. Tumbila Mona, Tumbila Torie, Lomeanor, that is what they used to say. Things have changed, but it is still true in places. What do you mean, said Pippin? What is true? The trees and the ants, said Treebeard. I do not understand all that goes on myself, so I cannot explain it to you. Some of us are still true ants and lively enough in our fashion, but many are growing sleepy, going tree-ish, as you might say. Most of the trees are just trees, of course, but many are half awake. Some are quite wide awake, and a few are, well, uh, well, getting entish. That is going on all the time. When that happens to a tree, you find that some have bad hearts. Nothing to do with their wood, I do not mean that. Why, I know some old, good old willows down the entwash, gone long ago, alas. They were quite hollow. Indeed, they were falling all to pieces, but as sweet and sweet-spoken as a young leaf. And then there are some trees in the valleys under the mountains, sound as a bell and bad right enough. That sort of thing seems to spread. There used to be some very dangerous parts in this country. There are still some very black patches. So trees are awakening into entishness as the ants, some of them, are, what, slipping into tree-ishness. There is a kind of odd reciprocity that, that trees are, hmm, <laughs> trees are potential ants, or to put it another way, ants are nothing more, and certainly nothing less than, awoken trees. And of course, we must be thinking of Old Man Willow. We're, we're thinking certainly of Old Man Willow in the earlier passage when he's talking about, you know, there are things that look like ants but ain't, as you might say. Clearly, Old Man Willow kind of falls into that space. Is Old Man Willow an ant who slipped into his treeishness but remains awake enough and malevolent enough that he wants to hurt and harm, not just by his action against the hobbits, of course, but we know from Tom Bombadil that Old Man Willow is trouble. He, he is expecting trouble, or kind of, Tom Bombadil is warning Old Man Willow off any trouble before he even knows that the hobbits are there as he approaches singing his song. That would explain, perhaps, why Old Man Willow knows the songs that he knows. Songs that aren't as strong as Tom Bombadil, certainly, but are still powerful enough to ensnare well, I was going to say four guileless hobbits, but I guess what I mean is three guileless hobbits and Sam, who knows his stuff and, of course, saves the day because that's what Sam's do, I guess. The um, elven that we get here, which I'm not going to try and pronounce again, or I guess half elven here, Lodolin Doronen, Lindelorendor, Malinor Elian, Ornamalin, that is uh, the Quenya, and then the second italicized thing here on the slide, that is the Entish, but they both mean the same thing. They both translate as forest many shadowed, deep valley black, deep valley forested, gloomy land. 
That is the name that is given. Lodolin Doranan. That is the name that was originally given to Lothlorien, the land of the Valley of Singing Gold. That was what the elves called it back in the day. Now they call it Lothlorien. It's a very different thing. Um, how did the trees become dark, says Nikki. I understand certain forests like Mirkwood having the effect because of the evil surrounding them, but what about the other forests? That's an, yeah, and John here is, is uh, saying that Old Man Willow is possibly a black horn. Yes, we'll talk more about, uh, we'll talk more about horns when we get to the actual definition there. But yes, that's, that's a very good, uh, that's a very good reference there. Um, how do trees become dark? Well, that's an interesting question, isn't it? What do we get here? You know, what, what do we understand from Treebeard? Why should they become dark? Some of them are, are bad. Some of them have bad hearts. Nothing to do with their wood. I do not mean that. Why, I knew some good old willows. Hey, no coincidence that he mentions willows here. It is not as though willows as a breed are bad sorts. I knew some good old willows down the Entwash, gone long ago, alas. They were quite hollow, falling all to pieces, but as quiet and sweet-spoken as a young leaf. Good trees, good trees, even though they were not solid trees or healthy trees. And then there are other trees who turn to malice. There are some trees in the valleys under the mountains sound as a bell and bad right through. Well, what is the clue that we get there? Valleys under the mountains? Our experience of valleys under the mountains is a little complicated, right? Because we've seen valleys under the mountains be very positive places. Holland on the western flank or even, you know, the, the uh, Dimmerl Dale as an Obazar on the eastern flank. Not terrible places, but still under the mountain, still in the shadow of the mountain, still possibly corrupted by a fell influence, still possibly there is this this general shadow that that passes across the world, this, this kind of, of disincarnate evil that is spread by the incarnate evil in the world, uh, the incarnate evils in the world, excuse me, perhaps that is what is leading to the corruption of these trees. It is possible, yes. And our Faramir says this is this is very good, or just evidence that they have free will. If they can make bad choices, some will. And Rita says, they're all good trees, Brent. That's the thing. Those, those uh, good old willows down the Entwash, would willow again 12 out of 10 yes <laughs> the natural process says heather the natural process of rot and decay is not an indicator of evil darkness is more complicated than that heather that is brilliant that is a perfect encapsulation of what we're talking about here right rot and decay and even sickness and disease even even physical fallibility this is not an indication of corruption right this is this is not what we are talking about that in fact is a wholesome and healthy part of the cycle. Yes, Treebeard has lived for ages uncounted. I think that there is one non-canonical source that gives his age as like 13 and a half thousand years old or something something ludicrous, but, but it is certainly something of at least that order, probably much, much higher than that, right? Not every tree lives as long as Treebeard. Trees, you guys, just to shock you, are not functionally immortal, even presumably within the woodland realms of Middle-earth. The individual trees don't matter there. That's why I refer to the old forest and Fangorn and even to an extent Mirkwood as being, and, and again, to a lesser, much, much lesser extent, Lothlorien. I'm referring to these as, as gestalt entities. They are the, the culmination of all of their constituent parts. They are the, the aggregation of all of their constituent parts. Fangorn endures, even though the individual trees of Fangorn die. That is where we are. So it has nothing to do with the natural processes of life and death and renewal and rebirth, but has a lot to do with this shadow, this, this taint of darkness, whatever it is. This idea of, of, yes, original arboreal sin. I just don't know. Yeah. 
Good. Good. Oh, that's interesting. Seastar asks, how is Imladris different? And Shane clarifies here, Imladris is in and above a valley where a river splits. Um, are we... Oh, yeah, Seastar is, is originally asking, yes, Imladris isn't a valley under the mountains? Um, well, mm, yeah, I mean, yes, it is Rivendell, right? It is a hidden dell. It is a hidden valley, technically speaking, in the shadow of the mountains. But again, remember, we had Holland far further south. Before we come to the, the western gate of Moria, we have Holland where the elves lived. Places where the elves live are, or lived in the case of Holland there on the western flank of the Misty Mountains, are much more immune to the coming of the shadow, Right? For example, Mirkwood falls pretty damn fast into corruption, thanks to the presence of the necromancer at Dol Guldur. But Thranduil's kingdom doesn't. Thranduil's kingdom just persists. And yes, they are clearly, you know, waging some kind of conflict. At, at the very least, they are guarding their borders against the spiders and the inky blackness that is crawling forth from Mirkwood. But there's also no sense that the trees of Thranduil's realm are faltering, or were faltering while the, the necromancer was still at, at Dol Guldur. So places where elves are, are simply more resilient. They, they ward off the shadow. The light is stronger there, which, you know, might connect us back to the Shire and, and the fact that, that you know, the, um, the old forest... Hmm. Old Man Willow seems to be of a different sort in the Old Forest, right? When we're talking about the Old Forest, why is the Old Forest so distrustful of hobbits? Why is the, the Old Forest so, so... Uh, why, why is there such animosity between the Old Forest and hobbits? Because the hobbits burned the Old Forest. Because the hobbits grew a hedge to keep the Old Forest out. Because there is a kind of... of open warfare between the, like, a very slow kind of warfare, between the hobbits and the old forest. That's why the hobbits, when they enter the old forest uh, through the, the hidden gate there, are led by the old forest to the bonfire glade. This is super purposeful. The old forest is saying, oh, oh, no, come on in. First off, though, you should see what you did to us. We know that Mary's told the story. Presumably they, they are aware that Mary has told the story of the bonfire glade, but you should know this. Is Fangorn like that? Well, not exactly. No. Um, there isn't quite the same animosity there. Though, of course, Treebeard is much more, much more outright hostile. Well, Treebeard is, of course, much more outright everything, right? Treebeard is animate in a way that the rest of the forest is not. The rest of the forest, I do believe, led Merry and Pippin to Treebeard. So Fangorn as a forest has an awareness that Fangorn the individual, you know, doesn't quite have. He certainly seems to be surprised by them, but there is still an enmity there with regard to the the orcs, right? There's there's still a hatred of the orcs and the orcs of Isengard in particular. Okay. Um yes, Nikki says imagine what Mirkwood would be without the green elves. I mean, we can only um, we can only speculate, right, that the rest of Mirkwood would have fallen. There doesn't seem to be any limiting factor here. Why did did Thranduil's kingdom endure? Well, because elves lived there. Why are elves safe from the shadow? Or ah, hmm, no, why are elves safer from the shadow? Because they're elves, and because they live among elves and elvishness. That seems to be the answer. Yeah, good, good. Um. Joseph observes the story's really starting to branch off a lot. I'd like to leave and get back on the root of our narrative. That's fair. That's fair. And, you know, good puns too. Okay. <laughs> 
So now into the song of Treebeard. In fact, you know what? We're running a little late here, even by my own standards. Um, hmm. Okay, let's do the song. We'll do the song very quickly. In the willow weeds of Tessarinan, uh, I walked in the spring. Ah, the sight and the smell of the spring in Nantasarian, and I said that it was good. I wandered in summer in the elm woods of Assyrian. Ah, the light and the music in the summer by the seven rivers of Assyria, and I thought that was best. To the beaches of Neldoreth I came in the autumn. Ah, the gold and the red and the sighing of leaves in the autumn in Tarana Neldor. It was more than my desire. To the pine trees upon the highland of Dorthonian I climbed in the winter. Ah, the wind and the whiteness and the black branches of winter upon Orod Nathon. My voice went up and sang in the sky, and now all those lands lie under the wave. And I walk in Ambarona, in Toromorna, in Aldalome, in my own land, in the country of Fangorn, where the roots are long and the years lie thicker than the leaves in Toromornalome. These places don't really matter so much, except that the first three pairs that we get, um, the first four pairs that we get, excuse me, are of the West. This is prior to the, um, this is prior to the, the drowning of Numenor, okay? So we get this kind of repetition. We get, in the Willowmeads of, of Tessaranan, I walked in the spring. Uh, the sight and smell of spring in Nantasarian. So these are the, uh, that's the same place. Tessarion and Nantasarion, uh, I suppose. That's the same place. And I said that it was good. It's fine. So I had the spring there, and it was good. I had the summer in Assyrian, and by the seven rivers of Assyr, Assyrian, the land of the rivers of Assyr, that's, it's the same place again. Uh, I had the summer there, and I thought that that was best. Then I had autumn in Tower Neldor, and it was more than my desire. It was pretty great. Then I had winter in Dorthonian, and that was pretty great too. I thought that it was great, and I sang, and it was wonderful. And all of those lands, all of those lands are now gone. All those lands now lie under the wave, and I walk in Ambarona, in Ta... I suppose that's not actually... That should be Taorimorna, Taorimorna, in, in, in... Excuse me. In Aldalome, in my own land, in the country of Fangorn, where the roots are long and the years lie thicker than the leaves. So this is what he's singing about. He's singing about, I walked in in ancient and wondrous lands. All of those lands are gone. I walked as the seasons passed, and I thought that each was good. I thought it was good. I thought it was the best. It was more than my desire. Ah, the wind and the whiteness and the black branches of winter upon Orodnathon. My voice went up and sang in the sky. This is an exultation in the winter in Dorthonian. But those lands have passed now, and here I am in Fangorn. This is a hint again of the long history, the long memory of Treebeard. Yeah. Good. Yeah, as, as our Faramir says, oh my gosh, and this could be, you know, the subtitle of The Lord of the Rings. Our Faramir says, you live long enough, you experience a lot of loss. Yes, as the world diminishes, so too does your experience necessarily, right? I mean, we can look at the, the map of Middle-earth and now look at Fangorn. It's a giant forest, you guys, but it's still very small compared to the forests that Treebeard walked in his youth. Okay, we can't spend any more time on that. We must get into uh, possibly one of the one of the the greatest quotes that we'll get from Treebeard as he is being told the story of Merry and Pippin here. He was immensely interested in everything in the Black Riders, in Elrond and Rivendell, in the Old Forest and Tom Bombadil, in the Mines of Moria and in, Loth in Lothlorien and Galadriel. He made them describe the Shire and its country over and over again. He said an odd thing at this point: "You never see any." Mm. Any Ents round there, do you? he asked. Well, not Ents. Entwives, I should really say. Entwives, said Pippin. Are they like you at all? 
Yes, mm, well, no, I do not really know now, said Treebeard thoughtfully, but they would like your country, so I just wondered. Treebeard was, however, especially interested in everything that concerned Gandalf, and most interested of all in Saruman's doings. The hobbits regretted very much that they knew so little about them, only a rather vague report by Sam of what Gandalf had told the council, but they were clear at any rate that, Uglu- that the Ugluk troop came from Isengard and spoke of Saruman as their master. Mmm, said Treebeard, when at last their story had wound and wandered down to the Battle of the Orcs and the Riders of Rohan. Well, well, that is a bundle of news and no mistake. You have not told me all, no indeed, not by a long way, but I do not doubt that you are doing as Gandalf would wish. There is something very big going on, that I can see, and what it is, maybe, I shall learn in good time, or in bad time. By root and twig, it is a strange business. Up sprout a little folk that are not in the old lists, and behold, the nine forgotten riders reappear to hunt them, and Gandalf takes them on a great journey, and Galadriel harbors them in Carasgalathon, and orcs pursue them down all the leagues of Wonderland. Indeed, they seem to be caught up in a great storm. I hope they weather it. And what about yourself? asked Mary. Whom? I have not troubled about the great wars, said Treebeard. They mostly concern elves and men. That is the business of wizards. Wizards are always troubled about the future. I do not like worrying about the future. I am not altogether on anybody's side, because nobody is altogether on my side, if you understand me. Nobody cares for the woods as I care for them, not even elves nowadays. Still, I take more kindly to elves than to others. It was the elves that cured us of dumbness long ago, and that was a great gift that cannot be forgotten, though our ways have parted since. And there are some things, of course, whose side I am altogether not on. I am against them altogether, these burarum. He again made a deep rumble of disgust. These orcs. And their masters. Are there Entwives in the Shire? Why would the Entwives like the Shire? Because the Shire is a garden. We'll talk a little more about the Entwives, the great tragedy, the great, I mean, great capital G tragedy of the Entwives in just a few slides time. But this thought that Entwives would like the Shire... Yeah, they really would. They really would. And the tragedy that that Treebeard just can't remember. He doesn't remember what they are like. Well, we'll circle back around to that anyway. And of course, are there ants in the Shire? Well, there is this throwaway reference, right, to something as large as a tree walking north of the Shire. We get this back, uh, what, beginning of chapter two. This is Sam and and, uh, Ted Sandyman talking in in the, the, the pub. So there is an account given there. Was that an ant? Was that an ant wife? We don't know. We don't know. I'm inclined to think not because the height of the tree there is used metaphorically rather than saying it was a giant tree. So it is possible that it is just something else very large or that it is just a story, that it is just disquiet among the Hobbit folk. Yes. Yes, uh, John is pointing out here that there's a, a lot of talk, obviously, here of Gandalf and a lot of talk of Saruman and where is Radagast. John says Radagast is more into birds and squirrels than trees. Yes, Radagast is about the animals, not about the uh, the trees, not about the, the, the green growing things that were of Yavanna's domain. Yes, good, good. Um, okay. So we tell everything about the story. No, wait, we don't tell everything by the story and 
gosh, doesn't Treebeard recognize that? That is a bundle of news and no mistake. You have not told me all. No, indeed, not by a long way. Because they haven't told him about the ring. They specifically withhold information about the ring. But it doesn't matter. Treebeard doesn't know about the ring, care about the ring, could have any conception of the ring whatsoever. It doesn't matter. He understands that they are doing as Gandalf would wish. There was something very big going on that I can see, and what it is maybe I shall learn in good time or in bad time. And then we get this re this recapitulation of the plot. By root and twig, this is a strange business. Up sprout a little folk that are not on the old lists, and behold, the nine forgotten riders reappear to hunt them, and Gandalf takes them on a great journey, and Galadriel harbors them, and harbors them, and Karis Galathon, and orcs pursue them down all the leagues of Wilderland. Indeed, they seem to be caught up in a great storm. I hope they weather it. I hope they weather it, says Treebeard. I hope they weather it. I hope that these hobbits, these little sprouts, make it through. I hope everything is going to be okay. I mean, I'm not going to help... I'm not going to pitch myself into this great doing, partly because I don't know what it is, but also, well, we get what is perhaps the definitive line from Treebeard. I do not like worrying about the future. I'm not altogether on anybody's side because nobody is altogether on my side, if you understand me. Nobody cares for the woods as I care for them, not even elves nowadays. Still, I take more kindly to elves than to the others. It was the elves that cured us of dumbness long ago, and that was a great gift that cannot be forgotten, though our ways have parted since. So the the... The Ents are made animate by the will of Yavanna, by the request of Yavanna, I suppose, and by the the embodiment of these, these particular spirits, wherever these nature spirits come from. But it is the elves that teach them to speak. And remember, language is the preserve of the elves. That is, language is what makes the elves special. That is what distinguishes the elves. So they share it with the Ents, and that is not a gift to be readily forgotten. I am not altogether on anybody's side because nobody is altogether on my side. What is the political agenda of Treebeard from that perspective? What can we extrapolate about the political agenda of all Ents and of all forests and of the natural world? Well, it doesn't matter who wins. It doesn't matter who wins in this great war. It doesn't matter about this wizard war that is currently raging. They mostly concern elves and men. That is the business of wizards. It doesn't really matter to Treebeard what happens in this war because the end result for him is going to be pretty much the same. His forest is going to diminish. People of some sort or another are going to come and claim the wood of his forest. They're going to come and cut and burn. And even in the Shire, which is, of course, this represented as this agrarian idyll, you know, the, the Shire is, is this perfect English country garden. But the crucial word there is garden. The reason that the Shire is at war with the Old Forest is that the Old Forest is not tame in the way that the Shire is. That, for those of you who haven't read ahead, for those of you who don't remember the tale of the Antwives, that is why the Antwives would love the Shire, because it is a garden, because it is tame. The Old Forest is not, and Fangorn certainly isn't either, and it doesn't matter what happens in the war, because the word, the world, will be tamed. Middle-earth will be tamed, and it will be tamed by the rise of men or the rise of orcs. It will be transformed into a parkland by even the most beneficial rise of man. Even if men are great, if the blood of Numenor still runs strong, if Aragorn reclaims his throne and reforges the kingdoms of North and South and unifies them into a single kingdom, even if we enter an age of peace unheralded, the world will still be tamed. The world will still become a garden. That's the best thing that we can hope for. And if that doesn't work out, then the orcs will slash and burn, and the forests will be destroyed anyway. 
there's no argument here for the perpetuation of Fangorn Forest. There's no argument here for the perpetuation of the wilderness. Even those people within the frame of the Lord of the Rings whom we are supposed to give, uh, to whom we are supposed to give our unequivocal support, they are themselves necessarily agents of civilization. They are agents of society, and society will challenge the wilderness of Fangorn Forest. It will be charted, and it will be contained, and it will be harnessed, and it will be, yes, ultimately tamed. No one is on Treebeard's side, so why should he be on anyone's side? We'll see the development of this argument as we move on. Um, as I scroll back here to see what everyone has been saying in the chat. Oh my gosh, R. Faramir says, this has the cadence of a joke, but I still like the idea very much too. If an ant fell under the influence of the ring, would it make a sound? You're asking if an ant falls in the forest? Would it make, yes. Um, could an ant fall under the influence of the ring? I have no idea. The closest thing we get to an argument about this is Tom Bombadil himself. If we are correct in our speculation, and Tom Bombadil is some kind of ancient archetypal nature spirit, then he and Treebeard are more like one another than any two other, uh, than Tom is like anyone else or Treebeard is like anyone else. And thus it is possible that without that desire for power, without that desire to even really change the world, without, you know, to, to, both Treebeard and Tom Bombadil seem to have a desire to perpetuate the world, but not change it. And we might argue, logically, if if that kind of continuation is change of a sort, is is the the foiling of of the nature of nature itself. We might have an argument about that, perhaps you know, over brandy and cigars later in the drawing room. But I think that we can see that there's no outright desire to warp the world, to to shift the world, to remold the world. So it is possible. Could an ant fall under the sway of the ring? My guess would be that Treebeard would be exactly as immune to the influence of the ring as Tom Bombadil. He would not be as gleeful about it. I do not think that he would have mastery of the ring. Huh, no. Mastery is, I mean, specifically and exactly the wrong word. I do not think that he would be joyous in his, his kind of relationship to the ring as Tom Bombadil is, but I do think that it would have a similar lack of impact on him. Yes. Um, gosh, we really are making decent progress tonight as we get through. I'm glad to say. Uh, let me see here. What was the first tree's first word? What a really interesting question. Um, tree, probably, right? I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Fangorn, maybe. Treebeard. I don't know. I mean, if, okay, here's the question. If Treebeard is the oldest living thing in Middle-earth, as Gandalf will assert in the next chapter. Was he first? Did he learn language from the elves? Uh, still, I take more kindly to elves than to others. It was elves that cured us of dumbness long ago, and that was a great gift that cannot be forgotten. Us suggests an inclusivity there. He might be talking about himself and other Ents, and it was a great gift that cannot be forgotten. It's a great gift that cannot be repaid, a great, a great gift that cannot be set aside. Forgotten maybe does indicate a personal relationship with those elves. It is possible that Treebeard is one of the original Ents that learned language. Oh, we're getting... <laughs> Our Faramir is guessing uh, rain, but no, both Sam and Nikki, I will credit both of you here with the obvious conclusion that the first word spoken by one of the Ents would, of course, be Groot. I am Groot. That would be the first thing, yes. A tree's first word, says Gildarts, uh, Gildarts Winters, would be, Squirrel! 
Yeah, could be, could be. I like that, yeah. Uh, Joseph says, I thought Tom was first. Tom is first and eldest, right? What does this mean? Tom is said to be first and eldest, but Gandalf will say, no, no, Treebeard, actually the oldest living thing in Middle-earth. What is the difference? Good luck, good luck with that. I have no idea. Does that mean that when the spirits of the Maiar, if that is indeed what they were, when the Valar sent their spirits or sent spirits out into the world to create the Ents at the behest or the request of Yavanna, did they inhabit trees that were already full grown or did they inhabit saplings? Here is my question. Was Tom born in Middle-earth? Was Tom born in Arda? Was Treebeard born in Middle-earth? Was Treebeard born in Arda? Was he born in the mortal realm? Because it's possible that if Tom entered the world already conscious in much the same way as Gandalf entered the world when, they, when the Astari crossed the ocean a thousand years ago, then Tom can be first and eldest, but Treebeard can still be the oldest living thing of Middle-earth. Like, like mm, we might be able to like very carefully parse that. Yes. Good. Okay, let's uh, let's keep moving on because we have to talk about Saruman. This may actually be our final slide for this evening. Saruman is a wizard, answered Treebeard. More than that, I cannot say. I do not know the history of wizards. They appeared first after the great ships came over the sea, but if they came with the ships, I never can tell. Saruman was reckoned great among them, I believe. He gave up wandering about and minding the affairs of men and elves some time ago. You would call it a very long time ago. And he settled down at Angrenost, or Isengard, as the men of Rohan call it. He was very quiet to begin with, but his fame began to grow. He was chosen to be the head of the White Council, they say, but he did not turn out too well. I wonder now if even then Saruman was not turning to evil ways. But at any rate, he used to give no trouble to his neighbors. I used to talk to him. There was a time when he was always walking about my woods. He was polite in those days, always asking my leave, at least when he met me, and always eager to listen. I told him many things that he would never have found out by himself, but he never repaid me in like kind. I cannot remember that he ever told me anything, and he got more and more like that. His face, as I remember it, I have not seen it for many a day, became like windows in a stone wall. Windows with shutters inside. I think that I, now, that I now understand what he is up to. He is plotting to become a power. He has a mind of metal and wheels, and he does not care for growing things, except as far as they serve him for the moment. And now it is clear that he is a black traitor. He has taken up with foul folk, with the orcs. Brum, worse than that. He has been doing something to them, something dangerous. For these Isengarders are more like wicked men. It is a mark of evil things that come in the great darkness that they cannot abide the sun. But Saruman's orcs can endure it, even if they hate it. I wonder what he has done. Are they men he has ruined? Or has he blended the races of orcs and men? That would be a black evil. Indeed, it would be a black evil to manipulate orcs thus, to blend them with the races of men and to create the Uruk-hai evil orcs that can walk beneath the sun, even though they are themselves spawned of that great darkness. He is plotting to become a power. He has a mind of metal 
and wheels. Let's talk a little about, about metal and wheels. Let's talk a little about this kind of cunning and craft. Saruman itself is uh, an old English word, is an old English phrase, I suppose, meaning man of skill, man of craft. But what it really means is man of cunning, man of... I don't know what the, what the, the best kind of word that embodies, you know. There, there is something sly to it. There is, uh, it, it is almost a kind of, of um, man of, of inappropriate skill, I suppose, man of sleight of hand, but certainly man of cunning, I think, will give us that, that similar sense. Um, Isengard means iron cord. It, is the, um, it, it means iron tower, effectively, as does Angronost. Angronost, or Isengard, as the men of Rohan call it, again, those things mean the same thing. Eisen is the, the old English form of the word uh, iron, and guard, of course, a Germanic word meaning, meaning you know, um, enclosure, like, like gated or, or uh, fenced, you know, yard or enclosure. Thus, Isengard, like iron guard. Th- that guard is the same root that gives us, you know, the Norse terms Asgard and Midgard, if you're familiar with your Norse mythology, you know, the, those are the same, that's the same root there. Um, so it is that is the that is the uh the common speech that is the Westron Isengard from the Sindarin Angronost, which means again just just iron iron guard, iron tower, iron iron uh emplacement, I suppose. Isengard was built in the uh second age around the Tower of Orthanc. So Orthanc already stood. Uh Orthanc also um <laughs> well okay. Orthanc's a little tricky. Um Tolkien gives two different accounts for the meaning of the name Orthanc. And for those of you perhaps not familiar with the geography, Orthanc is the tower that stands in the middle of Isengard, right? Isengard is the region and Orthanc is the tower itself. Orthanc, one possibility for, you know, the two towers that that give their titles, uh, that that lead to the title of this book. So Orthanc, uh, according to Tolkien, means in Sindarin, Mount Fang. That is, it is a, a jagged tooth pointing toward the sky in Sindarin. But simultaneously, in the language of the Rohirrim, in Rohiric, means cunning mind. It apparently means both of those things. Like, this is just a uh, simultaneous evolution of language. Orthanc means Mount Fang in Sindarin and cunning mind in Rohiric. But much more importantly, in Old English, Orthanc actually means cunning device, cunning uh, mechanism, cunning, cunning, yeah, device has exactly that, the, the right kind of sly cunning about it, right? So Orthanc itself is the cunning device run by the man of cunning. So here we're seeing an opposition to wisdom, right? We, we talk about this all the way back uh, with, with, uh, with Gandalf when he's talking about Saruman and he says, he who would break a thing to learn its purpose has left the path of wisdom, that is the cunning mind. And we see Saruman engaged in very much the same kind of research here with Treebeard. He's talking to Treebeard, or rather, he is listening to Treebeard. He is absorbing, he is hoarding knowledge and power, therefore, from Treebeard. He is leeching off of Treebeard and never sharing in light kind. In like kind. Um, I told him many things that he would never have found out by himself, but he never repaid me in like kind. I cannot remember that he ever told me anything, says Treebeard. I can't remember him ever giving me information, teaching me something that I could not know myself. And he got more and more like that. His face, as I remember it, I have not seen it in many a day, became like windows in a stone wall, windows with shutters inside. He can close off his mind. He is no longer transparent to those around him. He is himself guarded, as 
Isengard is guarded, as Orthanc is guarded, as the cunning mind must be guarded to other minds around it, lest its true nature and devious intent be revealed. To Isengard, says Rayla Lynn in the chat, and our Faramir too sings, they're taking the hobbits to Isengard. Yes. Uh, Joseph's, Joseph asks the uh, slightly rhetorical question, but yes, uh, John confirms too uh, that Isengard itself stands in non-Kurinir, which is another extension of that idea of, of, um, of, of cunningness and, and deceitfulness, yes. Um, Joseph asks the mostly rhetorical question, in what language does Orthanc mean phallic symbol of power? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, if we're going to accuse Orthanc of that, then, you know, Minas Morgul, Minas Tirith, you know, all the other towers that could be named. In fact, Barador itself, in fact, you know, could be, could be guilty of that same association. But, you know, fair, fair, fair. Um, good, good. All right. Um, yes, I'm fascinated, says Andrea, by the sin of greed. In this case, the hoarding of knowledge, a gluttony. Exactly, right? He's not... He's not sharing. He's not keeping his own counsel because it is wise. And he is not keeping his own counsel to protect others, as Gandalf certainly has. I mean, we must remember, the Dúnedain are patrolling the Shire in secret in order to keep the Shire innocent. We're not giving the, the, the hobbits all the information that we could give them because to give them that information would not empower them. It would dispirit them, rather, right? So there is something to be said for the benevolent protection of, of someone, you know, the keeping of dangerous information from someone or something. But that's not what Saruman is doing. He is simply hoarding information. And actually, there's a great quote. Let me uh, turn to my, um, to my reader's companion to the Lord of the Rings, because I discovered this today. This comes from, uh, this is a quote from uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, author of the century, in which Tom Shippey, um, gosh, arguably the greatest living Tolkien scholar. I mean, Tom Shippey, he's, he's definitely up there. You know, he's definitely up there. Um, he uh, writes in, uh, with regard to Saruman, he says that Saruman is caught, quote, not with the dragon sickness associated with gold, but with a metal sickness associated with iron, a disease which quoting uh, Professor Shippey, starts as an intellectual curiosity, develops as engineering skill, turns into greed and the desire to dominate, corrupts further into a hatred and contempt of the natural world which goes beyond any rational desire to use it. Saruman's orcs start by felling trees for the furnaces, but they end up by felling them for fun, as Treebeard complains. The applicability of this is obvious, with Saruman becoming an image of one of the characteristic voices of modernity, skill without purpose, bulldozing for the sake of change. And this is what is represented in the broadest sense. And this, I think, is actually where we'll, uh, where we'll wrap up, because we're about to pivot to the Entwives. So I think this will be the last slide that we'll cover this evening. And then we'll do the Entwives and the Entmoot and the March to Isengard. We'll do all of that next week. That'll be, that'll be just fine. Um, this is part of Tolkien's primary thematic thrust within the pages of The Lord of the Rings. We are suspicious of industry. We have been suspicious of industry right from the jump. We talked way back when we were talking about the Shire originally, about what it is that makes the Shire special and how it is that the Shire manages to have this agrarian, you know, yes, certainly class-based society, but within the bounds of a class-based society, a fairly egalitarian, you know, social structure here. Um, what is it that allows the hobbits to maintain this, this standard of living? And we looked very carefully at the technological mechanisms available to the, uh, to the hobbits. And we look at, you know, they have the bellows for the fire and they have the mill. They have, you know, we talked about the, the, the ways in which in the medieval period, mill owners were disproportionately powerful because owning 
a mill allowed you to basically manipulate what, a half dozen farms, a dozen farms around you. Because all of those farmers, they couldn't afford to run a mill of their own, but they did require the services of a mill. You were the middleman. You were the guy. You held the political power. If a farmer irritated you or frustrated you or in any way refused to give you due credit or to, to show due deference to you, you as the mill owner absolutely had the ability to prevent that farmer from using your mill and thus putting him at a severe disadvantage compared to the other farmers in the area. And that was one of the first times in agrarian culture that, that power became codified in specific individuals because of their technological advance, right? And it is no coincidence that, that who are the worst people in the Shire, apart perhaps from the Sackville Bagginses? Well, the Millers, right? Ted Sandyman is a Miller. That's a problem. That's why he's the bad guy. More on that later. We'll, we'll talk about the, the, the coming of technology to the Shire, certainly. And we've had a glimpse of that, of course, in Sam's glimpse in, uh, in uh, Galadriel's mirror when he's seen the destruction of, of the Shire. He's seen the, the tearing down of the old trees, right? Doesn't that sound familiar now? Aren't we, aren't we now already primed to expect this conflict with Treebeard or, or to, to, to perceive Treebeard's perspective on the conflict that is happening around him? I think that that's you know, clearly part of Tolkien's thematic intent here. So he's skeptical of industrialization. Why is he skeptical of industrialization? Well, it's not, I think, because Tolkien was a cheap and cavalier kind of golden age thinker. I don't think it's because Tolkien particularly thought that, that well, true happiness and empowerment only comes from the, the working of the land with one's own two hands and, you know, simple wooden tools crafted by one's own two hands. I don't think that is necessarily what he's getting at. Tolkien was, <sighs> suspicious does not, do the man credit sufficiently. He was fearful and critical and outraged by any desire to use other people as tools. So the great rise of industrialization that for Tolkien led to the end of, of England's, you know, idyllic golden age, the, the building of the great factories of the North in Birmingham and in Manchester, and of course, you know, in, in London and environs, um, that industrialization process rendered the workers in those factories as less than human. We were now no longer an egalitarian society. If all you are is a farmer and your job as a farmer is to farm, and yes, of course, there is the class structure where you owe duty to a feudal lord, you owe duty to a local earl or count who owes fealty to a duke who owes fealty to the king, like, that's fine. That social structure appointed by God, right? That social structure as it's supposed to be. And feudalistic structure, real good, strong feudalistic structure of the type that rarely happened in real life, but is, you know, the, the perfected, you know, idealized form of feudalistic structure is actually somewhat fair because yes, you owe your fealty upward, but those people who are above you owe you their protection and their their service in a sense. You know, we've talked a lot about the role of the king and how the king interacts with, with those people who are of a lower social class. But industrialization does away with that. Industrialization does not create an analogous reciprocal relationship between those below and those above. The employer at a factory, the owner of a factory, the owner of a mill, if you want to, to take it back to that level, does not owe the people below him, the people dependent upon him, protection. He does not owe them a living wage even. They are tools to be exploited. They are resources to be exploited. And that is at the heart of what Tolkien found to be 
distasteful to be disgusting about this kind of mass industrialization. So while we are dealing in the pages of the Lord of the Rings with Sauron and with a kind of incarnate evil and with corruption and with pride and the desire for power, right? The big ticket, you know, evil items in, in Tolkien's cosmology and Tolkien's theology, you know? While Sauron is the real embodiment of real evil, power and greed and the desire for more and more and more, Saruman is a more more relevant contemporarily kind of, of kind of evil you know he represents industrialization and the lack of wisdom and the desire to dissect and to hoard and to to continually perfect he represents a kind of science a kind of science that is divorced from a moral framework and also from a kind of social conscience right a kind of science in Tolkien's mind and of course we must remember that for the professor science meant more often than not, weapons craft. Science was about the forging of greater weapons, which is absolutely specifically what Saruman is engaged in right now. The forging of a better weapon, the Urukai. These are just simply more devastating weapons. And of course, the professor was suspicious of that, both in the way that industrialization literally dehumanizes and in the way in which weapons are used as a means of exerting a kind of temporary political authority, exerting control. That's Problematic, obviously, very problematic, too. Um, let me see here. Does Treebeard show kingly virtue, says Joseph? What a fantastic question. Um, does Treebeard show kingly virtue? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, if you remember that his subjects are trees. If you remember that his subjects are the trees of Fangorn Forest specifically, then yes, he rules and leads, but also primarily serves. He is, yes, a servant king. I, I, I would argue that Treebeard, as the king of Fangorn Forest, is an excellent king. Yes, that's a really, really great question. Good. Um, yes, Jared says, and this is a thought I must admit that I, I have from time to time and try to shove away as quickly as I could. Jared asks, what would Tolkien say about our current culture? I shudder to think of how scathing his remarks would be. What would the professor make of smartphones? It wouldn't be good, you guys. It would, I, I doubt that he would have a good thing to say about the new iOS update. I'll tell you that much. Um, yes, good. Good. All right, let's uh, see here. Um, okay, I think... Yes, uh, John is, is quoting here from uh, from the Shire. It turned out that Otho owned a good deal more than was good for him. Yes, the idea that the owning of land, the owning of property, the owning of things is corruptive. Well, hey, haven't we seen that a couple of times over now? Like, we've kind of slipped into this mode with the dwarves where we talk about the lust for gold and we talk about the corruptive influence of the dwarven rings and we talk about the dragon sickness and we talk about these things. And that is certainly a type of... of of avarice, of selfishness, of of the the immediate dehumanization of others, you know, holding oneself apart, holding oneself above. Certainly, yes, the dwarves are guilty of that, but they're guilty of that in a very specific way, a very specific way that is emergent from their positive impulses. That is to say, it is not the case that dwarves in their pursuit of gold and gems and things of beauty will necessarily fall any more than all things will necessarily fall. It is possible to be a good dwarf, right? That, that does exist within the legendarium of Tolkien. But it is not possible to 
be a good dominator of other people. It is not possible to be, to be a benevolent tyrant, I suppose. That, that is just antithetical to, to Tolkien's whole conception of social justice and of, you know, this is, I, I think, oftentimes misinterpreted. It is easy, particularly, God knows, it was easy in the 1960s for, you know, the hippie movement to kind of latch onto the Lord of the Rings and to read passages like this, that, that, that I am not on anyone's side because no one is entirely on my side, say the hippies. Well, yeah, man, it's because we need to protect the environment. Tolkien would not have, I think stood for that. He would not have embraced this idea that, no, actually what we're looking for is a return to to the wilderness. Like, there is a reason that the Shire is the perfect idyll within the world of Middle-earth. It is a garden. It is not wild. It is about, well, what is the primary comfort that, that Tolkien espouses? Or <laughs> I kind of tipped my hand there. What is the primary virtue that Tolkien espouses within the pages of The Lord of the Rings? I think, as we discussed back in the Hobbit bath song, right? Elves have the... The, the natural beauty of the thing. They appreciate the natural beauty of the thing. And men appreciate the kind of, the functional utility of the thing. And dwarves appreciate, excuse me, as I knock a glass over there, dwarves appreciate the kind of, uh, the, the beautified utility of the thing. They, they want to make it more beautiful. They want to make art out of it. And hobbits appreciate comfort. Ultimately, all things in the world should exist for comfort. All things in the world should exist to improve the lot of all. That's what we can aim for. Yes. Um, smartphone says C-Star, and to a greater extent, the internet. Allow me to discuss Tolkien's work with people. He might not like them, but they're good for this. Right. Right. Uh, arguably, yes. And arguably, you know, guys, factories are pretty good. Like, I like things that are built in factories. Factories aren't necessarily bad, but there is, again, it's not the factory. It's the dehumanization that is associated with, for Tolkien, contemporary industrialization and certainly contemporary warfare. You know what? More on this next week. We, we're going to uh, we're going to have a lot more opportunity to talk about this as we move forward. Yes, good, good. Okay, let's wrap it up there. I've already run ten minutes over and didn't get through most of what I wanted to talk about. So. I'm afraid that will have to do it for this week. You guys, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, next week, then, we will look at uh, Chapter 5. We will look at The White Rider. We will do that at 10 p.m. Eastern next week. That is Thursday, November the 9th, 2017. We will conclude our discussion of Treebeard, the Ants, the Ant Wives, the Ant Moot, the March to Isengard. And then we'll talk about, well, The White Rider about whom we know nothing at this point, about whom we can speculate not at all. I have no idea who this character is, but I'm looking forward to finding out when I read chapter five of book three of The Lord of the Rings. You guys, it has been an absolute pleasure talking with you all this evening. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope that you will return next week. Until then, take care.